we get on this hamster wheel of we've got deadlines and we've got a content plan and we've got a media buy that we have to get the plan figured out or the creative for. And we're just in a very good way or very deadline driven, but that can also really keep us from doing our best work. If you're marketing to a technical audience, today's episode is just for you. My name is Darren Smith and you're listening to Digital Surfing. Today's podcast features Rebecca Gear. She is currently the CMO of Monolith AI. She has founded an agency before, she has written a book, and she's got a wealth of experience of how to speak to technical audiences such as engineers. Welcome, Rebecca. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So I'm sure everybody is wondering, who is Rebecca? Why do I have you on the show? So you want to give us a little bit of your personal background just to paint some color to that picture. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I'm very far away from you being in <laughs> South Africa. I'm all the way over in the US. I'm actually based in Austin in Texas. That's um, a beautiful city. Yeah, I know. Yeah, more and more people are are coming here are very aware. It didn't used to be that way. Austin was not really that well known, but but now yeah, it's it's a lot more well known. Yeah, married, couple kids, and I actually, I know we were just talking, you're going to Boston pretty soon for Inbound, which I went to for many, many years, the HubSpot annual conference. I actually went to college there. Funny thing, I really had no idea what I wanted to do growing up. My dad was actually in the military and then became a commercial pilot. And my mom, because he was gone so much, she had a more than a full-time job kind of managing the family. Um, so I never had any exposure to business. And so when I went to college, I it was very much an exploratory experience for me, taking different classes. And I loved psychology, loved French, studied in France during college. And, and so I guess as I got into my career, yeah, I really kind of fell into marketing through happenstance. So, but anyway, yeah, in terms of my background, went to college in Boston and after I came out of college, then I got a job. My first job was actually in marketing. So I didn't really, again, know what that was. I came up through PR and that's when I really started to learn all that goes into writing a, a news release headline. Those little eight words, there's a lot of work that that goes into that. And so I had a great career really learning about marketing I'm at a company called National Instruments here in Austin. And that's also where, because it's a scientific instrumentation and software company. So I got exposed to this whole market of engineering and just fell in love with it. And so really my whole career, marketing career has been in B2B and in particular marketing to engineers. So I was at National Instruments for a number of years and then left there and started, co-founded a marketing agency, ran that for about 10 years. It's still ongoing, doing great. HubSpot partner. And that's where I really learned about HubSpot and started going to the inbound conference and then uh, wrote a book oh. while, while I was at the agency. It's really, you know, a book I share everything I, I know to be true at that point in time, targeting this very risk-averse analytical audience of engineers. So the book's called uh, Smart Marketing for Engineers and did some consulting after that and then have been with Monolith for coming up on a year. Yes. Sometimes I feel like I should refocus the topic or the theme of this podcast to how psychologists become marketers because you must be like the fourth or fifth psychologist that somebody who says psychology that 
ended up in marketing? I, I mean, it, it must be that understanding of the persona or what, what do you think? So, you know, that's a really good question because I think about it to, now I'll say, you know, if, if it comes up, you know, and I'll say, oh, I was a psych major. It's like, oh yeah, so was I, you know, when I'm in marketing, when I'm with marketing peeps. And at the time, I'd love to see that. And I think for me, it was completely happenstance that I was a psych major and then went into marketing. It never in my college days did anyone say, oh, by the way, you know, psych majors, if you're ever interested in business, you ought to think about marketing because they just, there was never a connection made for me in that way. But yeah, understanding, walking in the customer's shoes, being empathetic. And then the whole writing, you know, and communication part of it and connecting with people and understanding where they're coming from. And yeah, I mean, it just makes so much sense now, but mm -hmm. no one ever made that connection. And, and honestly, again, growing up, I didn't have exposure to business because my family that just, we weren't in business. And I kind of had this very, uh, business was just greedy and Wall Street and it was like finance. Like I didn't even know the functions of a business. And so I just had this kind of aversion to thinking about business. But anyway, yeah, yeah, I used to joke when I owned my marketing agency that, wow, I'm the most like unqualified person. I never took a business or a marketing class and I own a marketing business. So I don't know, but it worked out okay. So I think it's an amazing story and like such an accomplishment to to write a book and not just an ebook. Well yeah. done. You know, I, you. I, I think absolutely are in the episode notes, we'll put a link to the book because I think the, the, the topic of marketing to a technical audience is really interesting. And I think a lot of listeners to the show have that kind of B2B or technical audience that they're trying to reach. You mentioned you had Monolith, you've been there for about a year now, and I'm assuming you've got a technical audience. So what is Monolith all about? Yeah, it's a very, very technical audience, like many that I've had the honor of working with before. So Monolith is based in the UK, founded by a gentleman, Richard, Dr. Alfeld, who founded the company out of Imperial College. He was working at NASA on a project working on one of the NASA rockets. And out of that experience, developed some algorithms that all of a sudden a number of engineers at the likes of Toyota and others had become very interested in and wanted to pay him for them. <laughs> he was like, hmm, maybe I have a business idea here. So, you know, that started in 2016. I had the fortune of joining the company about a year ago after Series A funding came around. They're funded by one of the most well-known and respected software VCs out of New York called Insight Partners. The really the goal with Monolith is so it's an it's artificial intelligence software company, and as we like to say at at Monolith, kind of bringing superpowers to engineers who they're solving the most impossible problems out there. Think of trying to model the aerodynamics of a car or a plane to design it to be more efficient, more fuel efficient, or more efficient in generating energy. So just really tough stuff. You know, engineers try to be as, as certain as they can, and they have tools, simulation, and other tools they can use to do that. But often when they're trying to create the most optimal design, they are left with this uncertainty. And so AI really takes their data, 
magnifies their own expertise and ingenuity to do it a lot faster. So it's challenging, fun, exciting, super cool to be part of a company that's created such an awesome technology and helping engineers just work smarter and more creatively. And and that's what I love. It's Mm. kind of a match made in heaven for me. (laughs) I don't think you could ask for a more technical audience such a great audience to apply all those learnings in your book. The other thing that stood out for me, what you said there is that he studied at Imperial College, which is another one of our customers, which is absolutely- Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, we have several PhDs and and yeah, different team members that have come from there. So it's a definitely a strong Imperial College uh, cohort there. Now, in previous conversations, I think you mentioned to me that one of your favorite words is no. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. No. <laughs> Why? Who are you saying no to? Are you, are you saying no to your team? Are you saying no to your agencies, your engineers you're working with? Who are you saying no to? I say no to a lot of people about a lot of things. <laughs> saying no to, again, it very much at the marketing level, saying no to designs that don't match our brand, content that's kind of more selling than helping. That's definitely a HubSpot-ism. You know, we want to do more selling and less selling and more helping. Saying no to the media buy that, you know, until we have the whole customer journey really figured out. It's interesting because when you and I have talked in the past, I'll talk about this. And as I was preparing for this podcast, I was like, oh, you know, it just happens to be that the first chapter of my book is titled Say No to Grow. So I guess this no has been on my mind for a, a number of years. But you know the, the spirit of that chapter is about carving out your differentiated position so that you can build a business that's valuable, profitable, unique, defensible, well understood. But to me, saying no can be applied, like I said, at saying no to a design that doesn't match brand, but it, it's bigger than that. Because it can be saying no to a career that doesn't align to your passions or your life goals. Or had a colleague last week that was just telling me that he had a meeting scheduled with a board member, and which is a which is an important meeting. But then a customer opportunity came up, and it was in direct conflict with the board member. So he emailed the board member and said, "Hey, I have this customer that came up. I really want to take that. So can we reschedule?" And I love that. I think that's just really smart, and I think it's just the right thing to do. So. Often, I think in kind of bringing it back to marketing, we get on this hamster wheel of we've got deadlines and we've got a content plan and we've got a media buy that we have to get the plan figured out or the creative for. And we're just in a very good way or very deadline driven, but that can also really keep us from doing our best work. Working funny, one of your colleagues would, in fact, your web team in general would probably... uh, I used to think that they had like a picture of me and they'd be throwing darts at my picture because I slowed the website project down several times. Even my own internal team was not frustrated at me, but I definitely had to hit the pause button and say, hey guys, wait a second. This whole project is being driven by deadlines that we set. So if it means we've got to push this back by a couple months, yeah, that hurts and that's a bummer but it's the right thing to do because we have got to get the story right. We've got to get the brand delivery right. And I think everyone in the end was understanding and appreciated it. It's not always easy to be the one in that role, but it's the right thing to do. 
I absolutely agree. But I just want to go back. back. You're talking about marketers that have their plans and calendar. Part of my interview process when I interview people is if you're applying for a marketing job and you're a bad planner, you shouldn't be a marketer because your life is around a budget and a calendar and that type of thing. But what I often see is you've got your plan, but then you've got a CEO or somebody that comes in and says, oh, well, why aren't we doing this thing? And why aren't we doing that thing? And many marketers will go, oh, sorry, and go off and do it instead of saying no. So you've been with Monolith for a year now. Did you warn your CEO that you're going to say no to them? Like, uh, Or how did you prep them for your approach and the fact that you are going to say no? I don't know that I necessarily prepped him. I will say that actually, even in the interview process, there was some discussion about whether they should hire someone like myself in more of a go-to-market marketing communications CMO or if they should hire someone who's going to be more technical kind of product marketing. And it was a really good, I think, process because I told the board and I told Richard, hey, if you guys want to go more technical and have hire this kind of head more product go to market, but a, but a technical product marketer, you should absolutely do that. But I'm not that person. So just to, I even think being true to who you are I was able to, from the very beginning, I was very clear about what I do, what my skills are, what the ROI will be of bringing me on versus someone else. So I think I was able to set that tone. And then when I first started, I also told Richard, the CEO, I'm not going to focus on the tech stack. I don't want to talk about the funnel. I don't want to talk about leads. I'm going to do one thing and I'm going to go really, really deep. And I'm going to focus on the positioning and messaging of the company and our ICP and our personas. And that took me about eight weeks. And so I actually was from the beginning saying no to a lot of things. Okay, we have a CMO now. We're going to come in and we're going to talk about leads and we need more leads in this particular area. It's like, nope, I'm not going to touch it. And so I definitely was putting up my walls and trying to take advantage of being the new person and not being on regular meetings and not getting into that hamster wheel. As I put that off as long as I could. I told the team that I came into, hey, you guys keep doing what you're doing. You're doing awesome. Let me know if you need support. Otherwise, I'm going to be over here in my little sandbox working on some pretty big stuff. So I definitely started from day one saying no, now that I think back about it. You gave the example just now about the board member where you said no, but in a positive way. So like, do you have some tips that you could give? How do you say no in a productive way that doesn't get people's backs up in the process? Yeah, I know. And and, and I get this question sometimes because I will push my team. I'll ask a question. Why are we doing that? And well, we're kind of already halfway through and I will hold them to accountable to go back to the people that they're collaborating with and slow down or pause it. And so putting them in the hot seat sometimes to say no. And, you know, what I recommend, if you're not comfortable, you can just say no. But I think the key there is to really explain your why. What's the trade-off? Why are you coming back and saying, hey, we need to pause this or can we put this off by a week or a quarter or we need to put this on the back burner now? And I think a lot of times if you explain the trade-off, I think people really appreciate that and even might get inspired themselves. Like, wow, that's really cool that they're making that trade-off and really thinking about where they're intentionally spending their time. I have this trick I tell people if they're not comfortable saying no, Say yes and. That's one of my little Rebecca isms. 
So you can feel less confrontational by saying yes, but you're giving yourself the control back by saying, and so for instance, yeah, I think that doing that whole video series, that's going to take 150 hours that you think is just the easy thing to do. I think that's a great idea. And I'm going to put that on our plan to think through as we're doing 2023 marketing planning or, and, you know, yes, I really want to meet with you on that cool topic. I can't do it today. Can we meet next week? So it's this yes. So you don't have the confrontation and you feel like you're collaborating and you're not just kind of putting up a wall, but the, and really gives you control to say when and how you're going to do it. So you can say no and just explain why, or you can say yes and. So hopefully that's helpful for people. I've certainly got some situations where I need to use that as well. I think that also comes back to my PR days of (laughs) there's this great tactic in PR. Well, there's a lot of great tactics in PR. The, The person asking the questions has the power. Another one is bridging and verbal bridging. So if someone asks you a question, how are your sales this quarter for a public company? Obviously, you can't respond and give them data that's not publicly available yet, but you don't want to just say, oh, I can't give you that information. It's not publicly available. You want to say something, you want to give some message. And so I think verbal bridging, well, while I can't comment on the current quarter as that's not publicly available, what I can tell you is we're right on strategy. We feel great about our product roadmap. Our customers are having really good feedback. They're collaborating and we look forward to sharing our quarterly results and then you give the date. So Mm -hmm. I feel like verbal bridging is that tactic kind of like yes and. It gives you the power back. So you're not just saying, I can't share that right now or no, I'm not going to do that project right now. It's more of, well, while I can't share that, what I can tell you is that same. So people can go Google verbal bridging and get versed on that. Yes. And kind of reminds me of that. Yeah, that's really cool. I really like that. So finding out a little bit more about you as a CMO, we found out about to know you get different types of CMO. You get kind of like really just big picture, no detail. And then you get the CMO that's like kind of going in and reading the blog posts and the social media copy and checking like the the detail. Are you one or the other or both or where do you fit in? Yeah, I would hope that the teams I've worked with would say I'm a pretty good mix of both. I definitely do not like doing tactics that are not tied to a strategy and a plan. So in that way, I think very strategically. To me, everything needs to be really tied together so that every dollar hour we spend is reinforced by the rest of what you're doing. So that that really tight integration, I think, is, is really key. But I will say, at a startup, you're wearing a lot of hats. You're, I'm just starting a new role. The plane is kind of flying, as we've used that analogy internally. So you can't just kind of land the plane for six months while you get everything buttoned up. And you've got to manage it while you're flying. So I've tried to listen in my role at Monolith, try to listen a lot internally to customers, competitors, the board, try to be really helpful and be in the weeds. I just came out of a meeting where we're getting ready to start a LinkedIn ad campaign. And I'm very much in the weeds on, not in a micromanagement way, but I'm trying to get into the details with the team to be as helpful as I can in what content should we use for this ad versus this ad. And using data from our HubSpot dashboard to see what content is driving the greatest conversions that is kind of from a data standpoint, gold dust that, okay, well, if we're seeing data, you know, this content is driving the greatest conversions. Well, 
we already have that data. We already know that people are finding it valuable. Let's bring that into our LinkedIn campaign. So I think you have to do both. I also like to think that, or at least in my own experience, I think in order to develop your strategy, you kind of have to go really deep into the details to kind of come back out with kind of the wood on your arrow, if you will, to know which direction to point the arrow. So, you know, great example is when I first started, I was talking about this, I went super deep, very heads down, leading a listening exercise to drive our brand positioning and messaging. And I I ended up with probably a 50-page raw data document, all of the feedback from this kind of homework assignment I gave out to CS engineers, sales people, our leadership team, even the board to try to get a sense of what everyone felt our position should be. And literally, it's a 50-page document of everyone's raw comments that I then compiled. And that was what I used to derive the ultimate 20-page document that is now our brand positioning and messaging and tone and personality and right all of that, all of our personas. So I think you have to go really deep in order to come back out with that strategy. So that answers your question, but I think I'm both. I'm very, very nitpicky on words. I know my team will say that. So I want every word to count and less is better. Less is more as the saying goes. And so really, really picking the words and making sure that they're words that are going to resonate with your audience. That's just, yeah, super, super important. Talking about these engineers, these technical personas that you target in, you can very easily not connect with them if you're using the wrong terminology and not going deep enough. So like, how do you get into the mind of that technical person? So giving us a little bit of insight into how you do your persona research. Yeah, you really can. I Maybe that's why I've come to be so thoughtful about every word because any copy, any content that you write, of course, needs to be very thoughtful. When you're dealing with an engineering group, they already kind of have their radar up on marketing and sale, marketers and salespeople. So they're already looking for the pitch or looking for some sort of glossed over, I guess, that pitch. And so you just have to be really careful and just be really walking in their shoes and thinking about what are the risks they face? What are their fears? What role are they in? What is the product that they're building and and why are they developing it? We have a great case study we're working with, actually a really cool article that's going to be in control engineering coming up in a couple of months with our customer Honeywell. And they have this mission. They're in the energy space in, in among many different sectors and to make energy usage, to empower consumers to conserve more energy and to be better about their use of energy and, and even to give them more data so they can not have such high energy bills. So all across the board, from the consumer all the way to the, to the grid, the energy grid, they have a mission to improve that. And what an honorable, amazing mission. And for us to even have a small part in helping their engineers create products that allow them to achieve their mission is awesome. So I think really thinking about that engineer, why are they developing products and how can we help them do that even better, faster, cheaper? It's all the normal questions that you would usually ask in developing audience personas. But for engineers, you know, I've been working with them for a lot of years. 
So I have the advantage of all of those years of collective listening to bring to bear here at Monolith, which is which is fun for me, just how we can be most helpful to them. And, and ultimately, you know, with engineers and with any customer, it's about winning trust and ultimately then winning their interest. But you've got to win the trust first. And that comes from showing that you really care and you really mm-hmm. understand and you're not just trying to sell them something. You're really trying to help them be better, sm- smarter, faster, you know, whatever it is. And all of these concepts and like targeting these engineers and talking to them and again, trust and like kind of yeah. making sure you're not condescending to them and the tips and tricks to achieve that. This is all the stuff in the book that you've written. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I touch on a lot of this in the book. Yeah. Yeah. We could talk for ages on this. And uh, so I think I'm going to lead people to go and buy the book and study it in detail. Maybe we can come back and go into even further detail. So as we come towards the end, I want to find out, is there something that you've done in your career that didn't go the way you expected? That's kind of led you down to the path that you are now and how you do things now? Gosh, something that in my career that I didn't expect, I guess, kind of where we started coming full circle, I certainly never expected to be in marketing or be in business with those greedy Wall Street people. But uh, come to find out, they're not that at all. Yeah, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. So I guess what's kind of led me down the path of marketing is, I guess, being a psych major, who knew, and just being curious we spend so much of our lives at work. It's best to be doing what we enjoy. And I think it was just hard for me to figure out. It really did take me into my thirties, I would say, till I really knew what I actually wanted to do. Even though I was in marketing and marketing roles ever since I got out of college. So yeah, I, I, I knew I didn't want to go get my PhD in psychology and be an actual therapist. While I find that extremely fascinating, and I think it's such an important tool for people. It wasn't something that I personally wanted to do. So it's kind of crazy that I ended up in marketing and owning businesses and writing books. I never thought I would have done that. Looking back then, like if you were to give your younger self some advice, what would that be? Uh, Stay curious, listen, try to listen as much as you can. I told my kids as they were growing up, and this is again, part of my PR upbringing, 51% of communication is listening. I always like told my kids that I would always tell them the difference between hearing and listening. Hearing is acknowledging noise and listening is actually seeking to understand. There's a real difference between hearing and listening. And one of the tips I give people, and some of this might be something that I would tell my younger self is I'm going to break it with this podcast because I'm doing most of the talking here, but go back and listen. And in my sales days, because I was in sales for a while as well, go back and listen to the recording Mm. of you in a sales call or in a meeting or working with a journalist or working with your website partner, whatever it might be. And make sure that you are asking questions of other people And seeking to understand and not just kind of going in with your way of thinking and just kind of trying to make sure everyone just understands your perspective. You know, I even will tell people sometimes as a tip to hold yourself accountable to staying curious or learning from other people or getting their perspective. When you go into a meeting, write down, you know, I'm going to ask three questions in this meeting. I'm going to make sure that I ask at least three questions and then do your little tick mark. Okay. One, two, three, and, 
And that'll kind of hold yourself accountable to that. But so majority listening, I would tell myself, you know, you're smart, you're capable, hardworking, learn from your failures. When I was younger, I used to get super bummed out by my failures. I think it was maybe a weakness of mine that I didn't really know how to fail. I actually wrote a blog post on this recently. And so, hey, you know what? We're all human. I make Mm -hmm. mistakes all the time still. Learn from them. Some are big, some are small, but also celebrate your wins. That's some some things I would tell my younger self. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you read How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie? Yeah, I think I read it. A, it's an older book. Right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. 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 I don't think I have, I don't know if I have it on my bookshelf, but yeah, that's a good one. Definitely. It is a good one. Yeah, it really teaches you about listening and asking questions. And when you try and do that, I'm like, he recommends trying to do that at a dinner party. And I've tried a few times and you get, amazed by how much you end up talking about yourself and so absolutely amazing yeah yeah yeah. it's so cool you know I think too you think you know people or you know we're just it's human nature to make an assessment even subconsciously about oh well that person's from imperial college so they're probably really smart and they're British and they're and you come to find out that like you know in Richard's case he grew up in a really large family his dad was military he's German he went to college there and ended up getting this great opportunity at Imperial. And he's just an example. And all of us have our story and, and it's so interesting. So we all have really valuable perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us today. It's really interesting. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, thanks so much for being on Digital Surfing. I will have you back again and talk more about technical personas and technical marketing and write the next edition of your book. Yep. I'm working on it actually. Cool. Well, maybe we can give our listeners the first glance at that when you're ready. Nice. Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks, Rebecca. 